what I take from this is huge amount of friendships and a community that's built it seems in crisis we see people at their very best and their worst but mostly at their very best and what I've taken from this is that people are really good and people in our community are fantastic. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The floods in southern Queensland and northern New South Wales have left devastation in their wake. The true impact is yet to be determined, but it has been life-altering for so many. When extreme adversity such as this lands, some people put up their hand and try to help everyone through it. Pip Sumbach is the owner of Pip's Plate in Byron Bay and surrounds New South Wales. Pip, how are you? Hi, Huck. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's been a hell of a couple of weeks, um, but you've been heavily involved in trying to help out the community um, since the since the floods. Um, what's it like there at the moment? Yeah, um, Huck, it's been a, a huge effort from our little Northern Rivers community and just so heartening to see what we've all been able to achieve um, in the absence of, of a government response, I suppose. I know that it's it's been um, a pretty crazy period of time, but what's it what's it been like um, since the floods and seeing the damage? Give us give us a sense of it's hard to sort of understand what it's like unless you're on the ground there. Can you give us a picture of what it's been like? Yeah, it, it feels like a bit of a blur. I think to a, a huge amount of people in our community, uh, the devastation is something I've never seen before. Uh, it's like a war, a war scene, really. When you drive down the streets in Lismore and small communities surrounding, um, throughout the Northern Rivers, all you see is just houses that have been completely torn apart. All of their belongings are out on the street. People just trying to deal with the mud inside their homes, getting rid of that before they, they can then deal with the mould and uh, buying new beds, new fridges, uh, all new electronics. So it's it's something, I don't know if bushfires are worse because in a flood you've still got that, you've still got your home but you can't move back in, whereas in a bushfire it's all gone so you can start again from scratch maybe. I don't know. <laughs> all these, all these, <laughs> these things running through our heads, just not knowing where to go from here for these people in their community. There was a decision very early on that you made to try and help everyone. T- take us through that process and and what you did and, and what you what you've been doing um, in this period of time to help the community. Yeah, myself and Wal Foster, a great friend of mine who runs Natural Ice Cream Australia in Brunswick, Wal and I do pop up events together, and we were just planning to do a pop-up at Barrio um, in Byron Bay, uh, an Indonesian pop-up the week of the floods. And we had our little group chat going with our other friend, Josh, who was cooking with us. And we realised that there was going to be no pop-up because the rain hadn't stopped and we were hearing Byron was flooding. So then quickly we, we realised that there was there was a problem. Um, Lismore was the levee in Lismore, which protects the town from flooding, was about to breach. And, yeah, we, we thought, well, let's, I don't know, put a, put a word out for donations, food donations, and we can cook some food and, and 
how do they get some food out to people in need? And that quickly spiralled into uh, chaos, good chaos. Uh, we we started to go fund me because we were being offered cash donations, and that went from a thousand, a goal of five hundred dollars to a thousand dollars to what then ended up being one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and beyond. And we just uh, we just managed to mobilise our amazing Northern Rivers Hospo community, uh, and everyone just started giving, and we started cooking. And it didn't. It didn't stop. It was this momentous, uh, this huge effort um, that that I I still can't really get my head around. We made up to I think 150,000 meals in two weeks or so, and we're still going. So yeah, it's it was a huge effort, and it all happened because the community came together because we didn't know what else to do and we knew that people needed food and we knew that we had to be that immediate crisis response. How many people have been involved and, and what has it taken to pull this together to create that many meals and get it to people that need it? <laughs> it was yeah, for two two chefs, uh, Wall and I, we, uh, we didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into. It started from such a tiny idea and then we had people like uh, Sarah and Jeremy from Bay Grocer in Byron who are local legends and they know their way around this town and they said you know straight away of course you can use our brat pan and make a big curry (laughs) that'll be a start Uh, and then we can kind of go from there and with our Instagrams you know running hot trying to find donations and volunteers things just started to, to go out of control and we had uh, within 24 hours, we had 100, 100 volunteers almost. We had people looking, you know, our friends who own small businesses jumping on board and saying, we'll look after the volunteer list. We'll look after transports because we know a lot of people with vans. Uh, Wall and I are thinking, oh, goodness, okay, we'll start ordering and finding a place we can cook all these foods. And, you know, it's hard to imagine, Huck, but we had no Wi-Fi. Telstra was down. We had uh, very little fuel in the area, so there was a, there was this kind of manic vibe in town as well. So we had to drive around to places to find food and um, you know find the cool rooms. And we just it was very strangely organic the way it happened. We just kept running into people who were offering help and saying, you know, do you want this twenty foot cool room? This was our local butcher offered a twenty foot cool room and said here you go, it works perfectly, you can take it to wherever you're going to, you know, build this little community hub. And that's what we did. We we raced around and, and just made it happen because that's what this community does, pulled together. What sort of impact has it had on, on you creating this sort of hub that's connecting everyone in the community that are dealing with such adversity at the time? Well, personally and I, I can speak for Wall as well in this instance we just we're just so connected to this community now even more so than ever knowing that everyone's here for each other this is just a big bunch of people in hospitality doing what we do so well and that is look after people that's what hospitality is about I guess and we see it in so many instances this is a and this is a I guess a group of people who have been through hell in two years in the hospo scene, just dealing with COVID and a very detached two years as well. I don't think anyone realized how detached we've been. And this terrible event has 
at least brought us all together and we remember what it's like to have mates and uh, people just doing. Uh, There's been no time for us not to. We've just been jumping in and doing things. So I guess on a personal note, it's just uh, reiterated that um, we're in the right place. I'm in the right place. I love this community and don't think I'm going anywhere fast, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to I want to explore sort of what's needed to help all of the the um, the towns and the communities um, and how people can help a little bit down the track. But tell us about sort of food and the and the role it's played in your life. Did it have a a role when you were young in your family? Yeah, it definitely it definitely did. I I, I haven't always got you know been sure I was going to end up in a career in food. Uh, this is definitely not what was planned from word go. But um, but I grew up out in the Riverina in a small town called Colliambly on a sheep and rice farm, um, an irrigated area. And that, of course, is a, a, a very interesting upbringing given that you kind of – it was very free range and we – we knew where our food was from and I was lucky enough to have two parents who were, were um, migrants themselves. So they bought, I suppose, a, an interesting cuisine, not even a cuisine, an interesting kind of um, uh, menu to our house. Um, not that they really probably realised that. We had uh, we had my, my dad, who's from Estonia, so his you were out in the middle of New South Wales, remember, in the western New South Wales, so his work lunches probably weren't the same as his mates. He used to have open sandwiches, <laughs> open sandwiches with roll mops and, and gherkins and things like that. I remember mum making them and, and, and thinking that was normal on rye bread. Um, and then my mum also, you know, she was uh, moved over from England, met my dad, um, over here and he somehow convinced her that moving out to Western New South Wales is a good idea. And, um, and he, um, and she, she lived in Italy. She's lived all over the world. So from a very early age, we would smell the beautiful smells of a, of a, of uh, a beautiful pasta sauce or something that was made from scratch. And just knowing that ingredients like anchovies and things existed, I think that was kind of rare for, for the area I grew up in. Um, but in saying that, we were very close to Griff- Griffith too in Western New South Wales, where there's a huge Italian influence and a lot of Italian migrants. So we were exposed to salami making and and passata days, and you know there was no shortage of beautiful food growing up. So I think I definitely had a good start. <laughs> You've had a fascinating career since, but what what, what led you to sort of take the step into that sort of world of food uh, in a career sense? I, it was, um, Huck, I, I studied a very odd degree given what I do now, just a, a Bachelor of Arts degree at Sydney Uni um, and met a lot of great people through university but look back and think, what the hell was I doing? Um, I One thing that came out of that, and I always think that this maybe helped uh, direct me on the path of food, was a scholarship program through uni to Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And that was a good few months of living over um, in Vietnam, 
Cambodia, Laos, and being exposed to beautiful food and those Asian flavors that I hadn't really explored and seeing how seeing simple techniques of char grilling and uh, simple flavors of you know, lime juice and and ginger and things that for these people that we were, it was often a homestay situation or um, or some placement in the middle of nowhere in Vietnam so I'd see the the bare bare minimum kind of people with the bare minimum doing what they could with the food they had and that they were growing so that was definitely a big turning point for me I think I realized I was obsessed with food I was going to every market I could and that followed me for years to come every time I would when I would backpack around Europe I would be drawn to the market hubs in towns and I would I would I would love my partying but I would always end up at markets in the morning <laughs> with a strong coffee and some delicacy uh, from that region so yeah, travel has played a huge part in, in pushing me towards where I am now, for sure. When Where was the first sort of insight into sort of the commercial kitchen um, and what, what it sort of takes to, to work in that capacity? Well, I went after a few, uh, a few trips overseas after university. I, I had a little accident. I, I broke my back skiing and so I had a bit of time um, down uh, and recovering and I, I moved back to Sydney and a good friend of mine, Hannah, uh, was dating Mark Lebroy from Three Blue Ducks. So that was, that was my way in. I, um, Hannah spoke to Mark and said, oh, I've got a friend, Pip, and she's – she wants to get into the food industry. She thinks she wants to get into 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 food, and um, and so I had a meeting with Mark, and he said, "Look, I know that you are you're not too able-bodied at the moment, but we'd love you to uh, help in the back of house." And and at that time, the three blue ducks were just starting out in Bronte, so I jumped in the office and learnt from uh, a great bunch of, of of hospitality crew a thing or two. Uh, and then when I was kind of more able to stand in a kitchen all day, I went on MasterChef and <laughs> wow. And, um, and then after MasterChef, after MasterChef, I ended up back at the Three Blue Ducks. So that was, that's how I, I got into the, the industry really. <laughs> I know there's a lot to take in that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an interesting journey. <laughs> that, that insight that you had initially with Three Blue Ducks, and then a detour into Master Chef and back to Three Blue Ducks. Take take us through that. What? How different was that Master Chef experience compared to the world of um, a commercial kitchen like Three Blue Ducks? Oh, it was so different. Um, really, really. Uh, look, I think I don't think I was prepared for the MasterChef experience at all. I, I wasn't sure actually what I was getting myself into. That was an, it. I, uh, yeah, it was, it was certainly, it broadened my horizons, but I don't think it prepared me for the, the day-to-day of being in a, um, a commercial kitchen at Three Blue Ducks. Um, <laughs> it, it was, yeah, I don't know if I can, I don't know. Both experiences, um, yeah. I don't, I don't know. They, I can't even. I can't put it into words. I guess the. I guess um, MasterChef was a lot of fun, and I just felt like 
I couldn't cook and um, it was a good way for me to learn how to cook really with um, with all this bunch of interesting people around me showing me different their different takes on food and and being and going we, we got to go to see Maggie Beer and all these amazing chefs and travel around Australia and that was obviously fantastic. It opened up my eyes, but I remember being really excited to get back to Sydney and jump in a real kitchen. So it definitely spurred me on to to jump back in in a real kitchen and and kind of figure figure it out from there and learn from some great chefs. A little earlier, you mentioned how important traveling has been for you with food uh, you spent quite a bit of time after that traveling whether it was indonesia or fiji or in france do, do you have any stories of of the impact that it had on you and your approach to food yeah definitely it's i've managed to travel uh, around the world and cook in a lot of places um really different places as well um and every single country is brought with it so many new experiences and i i can always see in my cooking these days that every place has pl- played a played a part i think fiji has been fiji and indonesia have been um fantastic because i've been very much involved with the local people and learning their techniques and also their mentality and the way they approach cooking it's always very community driven and they don't have hot heads when it comes to to the kitchen they they are their their calmness has rubbed off on me i hope i think and i thoroughly enjoy their the way they cook for for their family and the way they cook is always very much based around a love of of cooking and providing for people so definitely um yeah definitely the the fijians and the indonesians people have have played a huge part in and the way i i approach the kitchen uh i also love the outdoors and i love surfing and i managed to combine my love of surfing and cooking through working on luxury surf charters in Indonesia and the Mentawis and, and, and also Indo and, you know, I'm sorry, also Indo, that is Indo, um, but also Fiji. And that, that was so challenging in that I was just thrown on boats where I had to get the produce from local markets. And just, again, just, I got dumped in a lot of situations that weren't ideal, but, but, but I look back and I go, I'm so glad that happened. But I remember there has been a few times where I've been completely out of my depth and they are those experience that experiences that I'd never have had if I didn't jump into this career and this industry. So I'm pleased about doing it all, but there has been moments that I've been, Oh my gosh, am I going to sink? Am I going to jump off this boat? (laughs) Can you tell us about any of the sort of dishes or food or ingredients that you used on that private Island in Fiji when you were cooking for limited numbers? Yeah. So Nomotu Island in Fiji, it's a little private Island and it's played a huge part in my, my career and, and my life really. Uh, I, I took on a more permanent role there a few years ago where I was training uh, the Fijian staff and creating menus for the Island. And that was just incredible. I learned so much just about the Fijian culture as well. And also, honestly, every day we'd get huge tuna, huge elephant tuna, 
albacore, mahi-mahis, um, Spanish mackerel and coral trout would just arrive at our, you know, from our fishermen, come on in. What do you want to do with it today, Pip? And I would, I'd, I'd have free range of this incredible fish that I don't know if I'll ever have access to that again. Um, but that was that was the everyday. So we would create sunset snacks based on what had been caught that day. Uh, create little um, fire pit, a little fire pit down at that, the bar, and cook beautiful coral trout in banana leaf and gorgeous whole mahi-mahi just, you know, straight up against the fire with, with nothing on it really, just a, a really simple um, salsas from from p- local pineapples, mango, and all these really simple dishes and it just came down to these ingredients that had been caught right off the island. Uh, that was special. And then obviously combining that with the Fijian Lovo nights where you'd learn so much about how the Fijians cook so much coconut milk and and, and beautiful lime juice and just, re- again, simple recipes that I take with me everywhere now. And I've, I'm the same with my experience of Indonesia. I take all these little parts of my travels and I can use them in my, my fire pit cooking every day um, up in Byron. And I'm lucky now I'm in Byron. It's very tropical and I have access to those ingredients again. So, yeah, um, in terms of stories, I have too many to to, <laughs> to even filter. I, I, the, the island itself, I was able to meet people – from all over the world and meet them every year as well when I'd come back to cook I'd meet them again and they they've become great friends so I now have a great network around the world of of families and and friends where I go and I cook over in in America or whatever and and set up a fire pit in Hawaii and you know it's it's a really it's been a really amazing network and again it's just come down to connecting with these people through food on the island um and yeah, very, very lucky girl. How did you end up in Byron? Well, I'd always, uh, well, when actually when Three Blue Ducks uh, moved up to Byron to start the farm, I'd come up and visit my friends up here and I always knew I'd move up there. I had a, I had a feeling straight away that I'd get there one day. Um, but as you probably learned that I, I'm a little bit nomadic and I, <laughs> and it has taken COVID to, to, stick me back in 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 one place and when when um obviously when when the when when the covid what am i talking about when um when covid kind of began i realized i wouldn't be in fiji every month i'd be um having to to figure it out from here so i i made the big move to byron in 2020 2020 yeah mid 2020 and um began a part-time job at Bay Grocer in town, uh, just cooking. And um, Sarah and Jeremy allowed me a lot of flexibility to to do my catering, my fire pit catering. And a year down the track, well, it's been more than a year now, a year and a bit down the track, I, I, re- I retired, I like to say, for a year and a bit of the grocer. I retired to start to focus in on Pip's plate and within four days of retirement, the floods began. <laughs> so there we go, yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, Byron's had a huge impact on me. The, the hospitality industry up here is just 
it's hard to beat the, the people here and the produce. Oh, I'm in love with the place. Tell us a bit about cooking over fire. That's at the heart of what you hope to do with Pip's Plate. Um, tell us about your approach and what the fascination is for you with that. Uh, I've always kind of had I've thought of ways to uh, – sorry, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> I, um, I've always wondered why I started – started cooking over fire and I remember when I was a kid growing up on the farm a lamb and rice farm I would often light little fires in the orchard this is so funny little little kid running around lighting fires it was very free range um I would light little fires in the orchard steal mum's cast iron pans and grab a a lump of lamb chops from the chest freezer because that was always full of lamb chops uh, and all all sorts of lamb. It was probably mutton, but we didn't know about that. Uh, (laughs) And mutton's great, come on. Um, (laughs) But we would, I'd I'd steal a bag of lamb from the freezer and and race out after school and cook little meals for my friends um, over over the fire and the cast iron, squeezing lemon juice from the orchard trees on there and using whatever herbs I could find and, and cooking. And that was when I was about 11 or eight, eight or 11 or something. So I think there was something there from the beginning. Um, but these days it's, it, I love it because there's that uncertainty when you cook on over fire, things can go wrong so quickly. You're always on your toes. I'm never bored hug ever. I'm always thinking to myself, this whole meal could be ruined in a split second. But, you know, touch wood, it doesn't happen often. Um, It usually comes out all right, or at least I say, oh, that's meant to be charred or, you know, (laughs) it's all about the flavour. But I love that the unpredictable nature of cooking over fire and the way people connect to it. I've never seen people, you know, people from all walks of life on the, on the Island in Fiji, some of the wealthiest people I've ever encountered who have cooked amazing feeds, you know, caviar and whatnot not on a nightly basis. They're intrigued. They think that food cooked over fire is some of the best food they've had in their lives. But I put that down to the fact that it's experience and it's watching simple ingredients being cooked in front of them and they can smell it, they can see it, they can then taste it. And I think that's so important and something that's missing um, from a lot of people's lives. It's, it's really special. And I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I think anyone who knows me will would vouch for me when I say I am pretty obsessed with cooking on fire. <laughs> One hundred and fifty thousand meals over two weeks is pretty extraordinary. What what sort of producers were you connecting with, and where was food coming from, and what what were you cooking that um, was helping so many? Oh well. It's it's so when I talk about community effort and the way people responded, it was people like uh, Salumi Australia, like Bread Social, like our guys Suncoast. Um, they're just out there. They're our amazing fruit and vegetable suppliers up in the Northern Rivers. They jumped on, and they didn't only donate beautiful amounts of, of food. They also offered their refrigerated trucks. They offered drivers. They just went above and beyond and there was just no questions asked they they said you know pip well where do we take 
this, you know, where do we need to be? We're here for you. Uh, and that, that was so special. We had, you know, we had, I can't, I can't name, there's probably 60, 60 plus restaurants in Byron and producers who just jumped at the chance to help. And a lot of them were really small, small time as well. Not your, not your Woolies and Coles. These were people like Tom from Cooper Shoot Tomatoes who offered crates of tomatoes to put on our sandwiches. And these are sandwiches made with uh, bread social sourdough and uh, local mushroom providers like king oyster mushrooms on these beautiful uh, sandwiches and umite, you know, uh, pepisea butter, all these amazing ingredients thrown at us. And that was just such a celebration of our community, wasn't it? You know, it wasn't just your average sandwich. <laughs> it's easy to... Um lose track of what's happened up there when you're not on the ground and the news media tends to move on to other stories and but the rebuild will go on for a long time what's what from your perspective what's it going to take to rebuild these communities and towns Uh, you're so right Huck I I've spoken to family members down south who have no idea what's happening up here and that's alarming I think the rebuild, we're going to have to make sure that people remain aware of what's happening up here and the rebuild's going to, the recovery effort begins now. We dealt with the immediate crisis in terms of food, but we can't go on now. This is a recovery. We need professionals to come in and tell us what to do to direct us. I think direction's been lacking and direction in all ways. You know, we had we had our, our groups of um, the uh, lovely men and women from the army coming in but having no one to direct them around the place. And when we think about a – when I think about a recovery, uh, we need to think about structure and obviously funding, people to come in who know what they're doing and give these a um, huge amount of homeless people somewhere to stay, not just tents. We need housing and – and then, you know, the next part is mattresses and the immediate things, mattresses and white goods and, and all these things that have been lost. Uh, I think broadly what we need is just people to remain aware and people to keep donating and, and, um, and helping where they can. Uh, it's this, this is going to go on for many, many months, even years. Uh, you know, I'm from down on the south coast of Australia and I know that two years on from the bushfires, there's still people living in tents. So this is this is big. This, this is a situation that needs uh, our attention, all of Australia's attention. And it's difficult right now because of what's going on in Ukraine and, and the media have other things to to um, to focus on. But uh, I'm telling you, this is a, a humanitarian crisis and um we need all we need all eyes on the northern rivers if we can. How can um, people help at the moment? Is there the channels or ways that you can um, share with us that people can can help? If people are willing to do their research, there's a lot of grassroots um, uh, grassroots organisations who are on the ground helping. Um, still helping uh, get rid of mud and organize uh, organizing um, muscle to, to help people move furniture and do all that kind of thing. Uh, there's also um, 
also mental health. It's a mental health emergency. Uh, I know uh, the Wilson Foundation is another big one um, to donate to. They're they're fantastic. They're organising um, a huge amount of funding for mental health and white goods. Um, I can't give you proper places to donate money, but um, any organisation organising mattresses and fridges and white goods and people people have lost everything so they're going to need help in every area uh do your do your research obviously if if you're if people are at a loss uh, the red cross are there and they will filter their money into into good good uh into a good response but yeah it will it pays to to do your research we, I, I, I try. I try to think of ways that people can help, and all I can think of is just remain aware and um, and don't forget the Northern Rivers because it's a crisis. It's a it's a very important point that you make. Um, what sort of impacts has this had on you? Has there been positives to come out of this experience for you and the way that you approach what you do beyond this? Oh, I'm never going to get stressed over catering ever again. <laughs> uh, no, there's been uh, there's there's been huge positives. Um, well, and I have uh, this amazing little team um, that have come out of this. Small business owners who've come together, friends, friends of friends, about 150 people uh, who've just come together and volunteered. And what I take from this is huge amount of friendships and a community that's built it seems in crisis we see people at their very best and their worst but mostly at their very best and what I've taken from this is that people are really good and people in our community are fantastic uh the most I think one of the most lovely things I've seen is even pubs around the area like the Eltham Hotel they've been saying how wonderful it is for to see people come together at the end of a hard day cleaning or distributing goods or just helping on the ground in Lismore coming back to Byron by, via the pub and sharing a good meal listening to music and having a beer and chatting about their day and that's something we haven't seen in two years because of COVID. We haven't seen little hubs like food and drink hubs opening up for people to connect. So I think something that I, I really love about what well, I don't love anything about this experience. No, I do love things about this experience. What I really see as a positive that's come out of this crisis is that people are connecting again uh, in our community and, and, and sharing stories and basically just coming together as a community and 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 in terms of hospitality doing what we've we do so well looking after each other and yeah it's been it's it's, it's been an astonishing response Huck. i'm i'm overwhelmed by how beautiful our community is You've had a fascinating uh, career in food so far and Pip's Plate obviously is in your future as well. And what, what is it that you love about what you do? I love, I love offering a, a full foodie experience and cooking over fire in the elements. I think it really does that. It's, it's so special for people to come together and, and enjoy each other's company over food and 
watch their food being cooked and seeing it firsthand. There's nowhere to hide when you're cooking over fire and offering the kind of hospitality um, that, that I guess that, that, that open fire cooking offers. Uh, nowhere to hide. It's simple food. It's locally driven. Everything that I use is sourced um, from Northern Rivers and cooked so cooked simply over fire. And I, I'm, yeah, I think it's a. I can't even remember what you asked me. Huck, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, just, God. I just asked you what you love about what you do, but and I, and I went off on a massive tangent. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I guess what I, I love. What I love is bringing people together over over an open fire experience where they can see see the food being cooked in front of them. They can smell it and they can kind of share share their you know share the love for it. Um, not it's a, it's very different from a restaurant experience, and I really like that. I love eating at restaurants. Don't get me wrong, but I do love providing a, an open fire experience because it's it's like no other. Well, Pip, you do have an extraordinary ability to connect people um, through food and what you've um, done so far for the Northern Rivers communities is extraordinary. Um, please keep in touch and we'd love to catch up with you to see how things are going a bit down the track. Thanks so much for having me, Huck. A pleasure speaking to you. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.